Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. We humans are super resilient and we can survive and even thrive on suboptimal uh, habits and, and routines. Uh, as long as enough of the fundamentals are in place, then we can we can eke our way through. It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hey, hey, Bettys. Welcome back to another episode of Better. It's me, your host, Stephanie Estima. And in the final series of our rebroadcast for this year, I have chosen to rebroadcast my conversation with Alan Aragon. And in this initial conversation with him, I only got in two questions, but in those two questions is a wealth of knowledge. It is jam-packed with everything you ever wanted to know about protein. <laughs> so this is basically a masterclass on protein, all from protein timing to optimizing muscle mass, we cover it all. We talk about the anabolic window. We talk into the world of plant proteins versus animal proteins. And of course, as always, brace yourself for some controversial gems <laughs> that we reveal towards the end of the conversation. Now, Alan Aragon is a seasoned nutrition researcher and educator with over 30 years of experience in the fitness industry. He is a renowned OG and uh, the original gangster pioneering the industry's movement towards evidence-based information in the fitness world. So I hope that you love this conversation. This is particularly going to be useful for you if you are a woman in your 30s, 40s, and 50s, and you grew up with the sort of high-carb, low-fat era, and you are maybe through either listening to this podcast or other uh, thought leaders, the idea that increasing your protein, this is the only macronutrient that actually changes as we age insofar as we need more of it uh, in order to help maintain our skeletal muscle mass, in order to help drive muscle hypertrophy through mechanical stimulation and chemicals. So with that all said, please enjoy this masterclass on protein with my guest, Alan Aragon. Hey, Bettys, I hope you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. We're going to take a squeak, a little short break, so you can hear a word from our sponsors. The Apollo wearable was developed by neuroscientists and physicians for less stress, better sleep, more energy, relaxation, and focus. 
Using the Apollo wearable gives you the same physical and mental benefits of mindful practices like breath work and meditation, like improved focus and concentration, balanced emotions, reduced feelings of stress and anxiety, and more restful sleep. And this is great news for someone like me who struggles on a regular basis to meditate. And Apollo is unlike other fitness and health wearables because it doesn't just track your health biometrics, it actively improves them by strengthening your nervous system. Apollo wearable users experienced up to 40% less stress and feelings of anxiety on average, up to 19% more time in deep sleep, 11% increase in HRV on average, and up to 25% more focus and concentration. I personally wear it to sleep every single night and have been doing so over the last several months. And I too am happy to report that I have noticed better HRV or heart rate variability and my deep sleep is off the charts. Excellent. So if you want to experience some of these benefits as well, head on over to apolloneuro.com forward slash better. That's A-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com forward slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout to get $50 off at checkout. All right, Alan Aragon, I'm very blessed and honored to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Stephanie. I'm so happy to be here. I am so happy to have you here because I truly believe we are going to have a very nuanced discussion on potentially overcoming rigid rigidity in mindsets and diet dogma, which can, it seems as though, and maybe we'll start here. It seems as though there is nutrition gurus, diet principles that have that have almost reached sort of religious like they're almost deities onto themselves where people worship and you can look at all the carnivores and all the vegans on my page to sort of get a nice sampling of that. I'm sure you have, I'm sure you've had your fair share of them as well. Sure. But I wanted, I wanted to maybe start with why or why is it important for us to have flexible thinking and then hat tip to your book, flexible dieting when it comes to nutrition and creating or recomping or optimizing for the body composition that we want? Well, I think that life is just generally a jungle and we have to be flexible just in general, just to deal with life. And it doesn't really make sense to think that we can achieve dietary perfection or optimization all the time. And um, beyond that, I think that everybody is so different in their preferences and tolerances and goals. And not only that, but outside of some very specific performance stuff and some high end type of body composition goals, the body is super resilient in terms of what you can throw at it and still live a healthy life dietarily. And by resilient uh, and flexible, I also mean the body. There, there's a very wide range of of possible macronutrient breakdowns that the body will just equally handle, depending on the goal, both health wise and and sometimes even performance wise. And there's also a wide range of food selection, food choices that will enable people to live just ripe long lives, even if they have completely different sets of foods that they enjoy. So the human organism is amazingly 
diverse and resilient and capable of just almost <laughs> surviving and thriving on not everything, but on a very wide range of foods. There are certain things that are less negotiable than others, but you know, we can, we'll get there. So, well, that's my first winding answer. <laughs> I love, I love that. And I think that we can, he- I can hear the collective sigh across all the listeners because there's so much permission in that because it doesn't need, we don't need to be thinking in terms of black or white. There can be many shades of gray here. So just to highlight this, talk a little bit about what flexible dieting is, and we'll, we'll make sure that there's a, a show uh, links in the show notes for your book, which is available on Amazon, at least last time I checked and, and really everywhere. But what, what is flexible dieting? Sure. Flexible dieting is, um, it, it's something that is widely misunderstood and, and misinterpreted and misrepresented. First of all, that's what it, <laughs> that's what I think flexible dieting is. Um, flexible dieting is often synonymous with macro counting or counting your macronutrient grams. And that is not what flexible dieting is. That is a, counting macros is a type of dieting. And uh, people have conflated counting macros with a, an acronym called IIFYM, like if it fits, if it your, fits macros. your macros. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then what folks have done to take things a step further is conflate if it fits your macros with flexible dieting. And so that's the, that's the part that's incorrect. And I don't expect everybody to know that. And that's why I wrote a book about it. (laughs) And so flexible dieting is the origins of it are in psychology. So it goes back to 1975 ish when the concept of cognitive styles of restraint were discussed. So fast forward to the 90s, and now we're talking about cognitive styles of dietary restraint. And so there's rigid dietary restraint and flexible dietary restraint, where rigid dietary restraint views foods and dieting as all or nothing, black or white. And the flexible side of things sees dieting and foods in shades of gray. And so flexible dieting as we kind of fast forward to the present is the idea is that idea to a, a cognitive style of dietary restraint but also flexibility of dietary approach in terms of how you execute it are you more of a quantitative micromanagey person who likes being kind of a I guess an accountant with your Your macronutrients and your spreadsheets and all of that. Or are you more habits-based, qualitative, you don't want to bother with the small details type of person. You just want to live your life with some guidelines. We have everybody from all points in that spectrum. And so flexible dieting would say, hey, what whatever approach that you want to take is the approach that you should be taking because you prefer it and can sustain it. So it's really how do we individualize the dietary approach? How do we individualize macronutrition? How do we individualize food selection? How do we individualize hedonic allotment or the the junk foods, the fun foods, the the indulgent food, indulgence food allotment? And how do we individualize the dieting process to suit someone's proclivity for 
more of a linear daily caloric restriction type of model or more of a cyclical dieting or an intermittent energy intake type of model. All of those things need to be individualized. And so going back to the question, like what is flexible dieting? I, I would say flexible dieting is really individualizing everything as much as possible so the person can sustain it. And there are wide variations across individuals in all of those aspects that I mentioned that work. It's been my observation that the more specific the prescription, the more useless it is. So sometimes you'll hear, and I, and I say that sort of tongue in cheek a little bit, because sometimes you'll hear, uh, doesn't matter who, someone online saying something like, you should never, do you know celery? There was a study that looked at <laughs> celery and celery is a goitrogen and it has yeah. these anti-thyroid, let's say, like whatever it is, there's some little piece of this vegetable that if you consume it, it you're going to have a goiter and your thyroid's not going to work. And of course, the amount of celery that you would need to consume in this silly example would be you know, it would, you wouldn't be able to consume the amount of celery in order to be able to affect those changes in the body. But someone who maybe is not as well read as yourself, who's just sort of looking for the how, like they don't want to know the why and the what, it's just what's the how and what's the now. They'll hear someone say, celery is bad for my thyroid, so I'm not going to have celery. And so I, I bring that up because I think that there is a lot of dichotomous there is a lot of black and white type of thinking in the nutrition space. And I think that over time, even my own views, I would say, have softened. So we'll we'll talk about intermittent fasting. I used to be like team IF. Like it was like every quarter I am going to be fasting for several days until I started messing up my menstrual cycle, which we'll, maybe we'll get to, maybe we won't today. But very, very, it's very individualized. So I think that the more specific that my long winding preamble here is the more specific <laughs> the recommendation seems to be, the more useless it, it seems to be as well. So I, I do like more of a broader, and this is where you kind of get into the expert space. You'll often, if you pay attention to language, which I'm very sensitive to, you'll often hear experts use words like can, maybe, or the, the illustrative, I don't know. <laughs> I actually yeah. don't know the answer to that versus feeling forced in a way to be able to provide an answer that fits with the paradigm or the schema that they have set for themselves. Yes. Yes, definitely. And it's, it's like when you think of, when, when you think of being in private practice and working with clients or patients, the whole concept of having a really specific kind of script, a singular narrow script that you give everybody. I mean, you're not going to be in practice for very long, right? Yeah, right? Like, so just kind of coming from a background of having been in private practice for so many years, it really does kind of blow my mind that somebody could say, okay, I am the keto nutritionist or I am the blank, whatever, whatever you want to brand yourself with a very specific type of diet. It just, you cannot individualize things optimally if you just kind of stick in this very narrow and specific type of role or type of brand. It, it, it just doesn't make sense to me anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well said. I wanted to just start with that because I think that that will paint the picture for the conversation that we're going to have, which is all of the things that we're going to be talking about. I think we can put an asterisk at the end of everything that you're, we're about to say from here on end and say, it depends. Okay. So okay. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to talk about protein and we're going to talk about carbs and we're going to talk about the science of fat loss. We're going to talk about that, but it's going to really be highly individual. So this is where we can, I, I often say this, like I'm a doctor, but I'm not everyone's doctor. So we can talk mm-hmm. about some, of, we can talk about some of these concepts, but of course, speaking with your primary or your coach or somebody who has a, an in-depth understanding of, let's say your lab work and your history and your, your current fitness level, et cetera, is going to be the best person to inform the best care plan for you. Mm-hmm. All right. So with that being said, you were one of the authors from the International Society of Sports Nutrition, the, their position on nutrient timing. So I, yes. wanted to, I wanted to start here, and maybe actually we'll start with total protein intake. So we'll start with one of the three macros, protein, we'll talk about carbs, we'll talk, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about fat as well. Uh, I want to talk about total protein intake your position on that, how that contrasts with maybe the RDA, and then maybe we can talk about the acute anabolic window right oh, after man. that. Yeah. So okay, total so. total protein intake. So right now, just f- setting the stage, the RDA, I believe is, is it 0. 0.8, 0. 0.8 gigs per kg, 0.8 grams per kilogram mm-hmm. of body weight. Where mm-hmm. do you stand on I, I will say that I feel that that's low, even for a sedentary person. Where do you fall in terms of what total protein intake might look like? Is there a range? What do you like to see? First of all, I'm so freaking excited that you want to talk about this stuff because I going in, I I mean, who knows, right? But you are a total bro, it turns out. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm super excited about this. Okay, so yeah, the, the RDA... It was put out to the public in 1980, and they've never changed it since 1980. So that's like, is that 43 years? Is that my is my math okay there? So that's one of the big (laughs) mysteries of nutrition science or public health nutrition, at least. Aren't they at least bumping it up to 50% to 1.2? Just bump it up, bump the minimum up because. The RDA does not serve large swaths of the general population. So it's insufficient for the elderly, which is the fastest growing population on the planet, pretty much. It It is insufficient to maintain the lean body mass of, of older adults. It's insufficient to maintain lean body mass and satiety. And people who are dieting. So anybody who's in trying to sustain a hypocaloric condition for weight loss, the RDA is not enough. There's many, many, many studies showing this, just one study after another. And then we hop on the other side of the fence for people who are trying to gain muscle. The RDA is insufficient. And so, and even for mitigating negative or adverse clinical manifestations, the RDA is insufficient. So it it just, it needs to be, it it needs to be changed, but it hasn't been changed in 40 years. So everybody's just kind of holding out and 
almost just sort of giving up and figuring, okay, well, the RDA for protein is just one of those things that's going to stay wrong forever. So we'll, we'll just have to stick with the science on this. So you're totally correct. And I, I totally agree with you on the RDA not being enough. And typically, the people who argue in favor of the RDA are folks who just have a tough time getting protein in their diets or their diets are set up to for protein to be kind of a pain to acquire. And so you'll, you'll hear certain factions of folks arguing in favor of the RDA. And it, it, more and more vegans are getting onto the science and going, okay, well, maybe, maybe you're right. The RDA does appear to be not enough because we've got 12 dozen studies showing it isn't. <laughs> so yeah, that's my thought on the RDA. Well, I think even if we just, again, because I am sensitive to language, I always want to know sort of where words come from. Just the word protein, if we just look at its etymology, Greek from proteos, meaning first quality, or protos, meaning first. So it does need to be the first, in my opinion, first macronutrient that we that we consider as you sip your protein shake. Well-placed, well-placed. <laughs> so what would be, you mentioned the elderly, which is uh, a very interesting vertical to think about because we think about, and this is something we'll talk about when we when we talk about perimenopause and menopause, but as we age, there is just a general, call it insulin resistance that sets in as we age and anabolic resistance that sets in as we age. And if there's no strategy, let's say lifting weights or resistance training in some capacity, there's going to be a loss in both strength and volume of the muscle fiber. And certainly, even though strength and mass, we'll say, are different, they actually track so close with each other that they might as well be the same thing. So you should, I always think about, I always talk to my audience about, I want to be the favorite grandmother. So like when I have grandbabies, hopefully I'll be blessed with grandchildren. I want to be the grandmother that's able to get down on the floor, play with the babies, tell my sons, don't worry, leave the kids with me. I'll take them to the park. I can run after them. I can get up off the floor. I don't need help. That requires, I mean, there's a lot of things that requires proprioception, ankle mobility, strength in the legs, all the things. So the elderly, it, I'm just reflecting back to you what you just said. It doesn't make sense that the RDA for someone who is over 60 or 70, that that protein requirement doesn't go up. So how do we reconcile even researchers that talk about uh, longevity and in the blue zones, they say, well, these, if you go to Okinawa, you go to Sardinia, you go to all these places, they don't have a lot of protein. Like they're not throwing back protein shakes, let's say the way that maybe I am. So how do we, <laughs> how, how do we reconcile that? Let's say blue zone longevity science, we'll say with what we're talking about here, which is that maybe we need to overcome some of that natural resistance that sets in as we age. Yeah. The, how do we reconcile the, the low protein, I guess, fetish of the longevity community? And, and of course, observationally, you, you see the blue zones and, and Okinawa being the famous example. Mm hmm consuming like what less like 12% of their diet from protein or something to that effect. Uh, well, they're also eating about 10% of their total daily calories from fat. So I would counter that the Okinawans are 
Well, it kind of goes back to my my initial point that we humans are super resilient and we can survive and even thrive on suboptimal uh, habits and, and routines. Uh, as long as enough of the fundamentals are in place, then we can we can eke our way through. Um, I think that the Okinawans would live even longer and more vigorously and age even better if they carried more muscle and, and more strength through their older years. I think that the fact that, for example, the, the longevity champs, the Okinawans, I think that their lifestyle and their, their longevity is a testament more to staying lean and physically active and having good psychosocial health, um, good family ties, good sense of fulfilling um, their sense of self-efficacy, their, their sense of autonomy, relatedness with their with the community around them and with their environment and also just having strong spiritual rooting i think that's an important thing so all of those things integrate and they manage their stress levels very well they feel like a productive member of society and they just move through life thriving in those departments so therefore they can get away with carrying a suboptimal amount of lean body mass, let's say. And when I say suboptimal, it, it really is kind of, it can be disputed because people like the Okinawans and people in the blue zones, they are outliving most of the rest of the world. And they do have less chronic disease than the rest of the world. But I still think that there's a margin of improvement they have available in terms of strength and body composition that will make, for example, their final 20 years of life more vigorous than it is right now. Whereas right now it may be that they start convalescing in the last 20 years of life. Maybe we can start convalescing in the last five, 10 or less years of life and just add some really, really good years there where you are running around and and where you are picking, carrying the babies and where you are doing things physically that you did when you were a younger adult. Yeah. And so and I, I think that I think there's room for that. Yeah. I think, you know, what you're describing is essentially optimizing health span. You know, it's not just about the years that we live, but it's it's the quality of the years that we have. And I think that your point is well taken. And I think the again, your view is is more holistic than, well, how can we just optimize for, so how can we just suppress mTOR activity? Well, <laughs> we just suppress mTOR activity by not having protein versus what you're talking about, which is pine basically, which is like the psycho immune system, the neurological, the endocrinological system, and then the community that we all, that we're a part of. I was I was joking with a guest a couple of weeks ago. I, I used to think that I could just people when I wanted to and then not people when I didn't want to. As long as I had like diet and nutrition and exercise dialed in, like I didn't need people, right? I could just like do my gym <laughs> workout, get my nutrition in and like get back to get back to my computer or read my book. And really it's it's so important to be connected, to be in a community where you feel seen and heard 
and understood like you're just like you're describing with this with this population they have very strong family ties they probably eat dinner together with each other all the time there's support there's not in north american society coming back to women uh, a little bit because that's the the demographic that i typically serve we often back in the old country let's say when you had a child your mom you'd be living in the same house as your mother and your grandmother and so mom could go and take a nap if she needed to and then her mom or her grandmother would watch and tend and care for the baby and so now we live in these these big boxes with these big mcmansions and we're isolated often live in different cities from mom or grandma if if grandma's around and so i think what you're bringing up is more of a holistic picture as maybe that 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 population has a natural ability. Maybe they already have sort of an like a genetic predisposition to living longer. And maybe that would be optimized with a slightly higher protein intake, potentially not, not, you're not saying absolutely that would happen, but you know, I think your thinking around that is, is, is really sound. Yeah. And it, it's one of those programming tweaks that can be made with literally an extra 30 to 40 grams of protein a day. I mean, it's not, not a big deal. It's totally doable. The The whole threat or fear of activating mTOR and shortening lifespan that way, if you can excuse my language, it's kind of an ass backwards way to look at aging well, because the priority for aging well would be to support muscle tissue, support its mass and strength. Anybody who's worked with the aging population, the elderly population, they've observed the effect of loss of muscle mass and strength on basic mobility. And so um, losing basic mobility is really the beginning of the end for people. And when they can't just even properly get up and down, stand up um, from a seated position or stand up from or get up from the floor, it's like, Okay, this is this is definitely the beginning of the end. And a lot of these things, we have to think, okay, what supports training for training performance? <laughs> I mean, you, you don't necessarily equate the elderly population with training performance, but you have to, if you want to preserve these individuals in a state where they were 100% functional, or at least pushed towards that which is totally possible to turn back the clock in a lot of aspects. Then we have to think in terms of how do we make these folks stronger? How do we support muscle mass and strength? And the answer is not, oh, okay, well, let's low ball protein because longevity and because we're afraid of activating mTOR. That's totally wrong. What we want to do is make sure people are lean and muscular and physically active. What supports that? What kind of nutrition supports that? What kind of habits support that? And that's the angle we have to take it from. Great. One more thing I'll add, and then we can, and then I want to get back to acute anabolic window is I, I think generally humans think linearly. So we think, well, if I don't get to it now, I'll get to it later. And maybe I'll age at the same rate of decline over time. And I think what I see, or I have seen in practice is that there is sort of this exponential fall where you don't age at the same rate when you're forties and in your fifties and in your sixties, there's like an exponential fall off where you just drop the ball and then 
to your point, can't sit, you can't stand up from a seated position. Or if you can do that, you can't, if you're on the floor, you can't stand up and be fully erect, let's say, without using your hands from a seated position on the floor. And I've often, I, that's actually one of the diagnostics that was one of the tests that I would do for every new patient that walked through the door. It's like, can, how many pushups can you do? I was looking for upper body strength and not knee pushups, but on your toes. Women almost at 100% of the time, not always, but could only push out maybe one. And there was lots of bowing in the, at, like no core strength and it wasn't full range of motion. And then the other test was, can you get up off the floor without using your hands? So for my elder, for my older patients, it was from the chair, but for a 40 or a 50 year old, get up off the, and if they could do that, okay, lie on your back now and stand up again, not using your hands. Not using hands. Yeah. Not using really the cool hands. Really cool test. Yeah. Yeah. And so that would, and that ended up also being the treatment, right? So like the test was also the treatment. So if you can't do that, then that's what you have to work on. And then we'd work on proprioception and ankle mobility and strengthen the legs, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, okay. So let's, let's, so total protein. So we've established maybe mm-hmm. 0.8 grams per kilogram, which is currently the RDA for protein, probably mm-hmm. lowballing it for most of the po- swaths of the population. I like that. I like that you said that swaths of the population probably missing the mark. Is there a target range that we want to be shooting for? Yes. And there's sort of two tiers to this. So so the first tier would be general population without any extreme types of goals in terms of body composition or athletics. You just want to be healthy. Just want to be, generally want to be healthy. And that range appears to be 1.2 on the low end to about 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. Ideal so, body weight? Sorry to interrupt you. Ideal body oh yeah. weight or what yeah. they currently weigh? That's that's a good thing you bring up because it technically when we talk about protein requirements, we're just assuming that we're talking about people who are normal weight. So for people who are either severely underweight or severely overweight, you would have to go with in quotes, ideal body weight or your goal body weight or target body weight. So that gets around the idea that, hey, we should we should base protein on on lean body mass. Well, yeah, yeah, well, that would be nice if we could always accurately estimate body composition, but we but we can't always accurately do that. And mm-hmm. so a more pragmatic and simpler and just as good way would be to base protein on either ideal body weight, goal body weight. Um, and of course, if you are at your your goal body weight, then it would be your current body weight. So yes, thank you for bringing that up. So that's so, for a sedentary yeah. individual, someone who's not, let's say, resistance training three, four, whatever times per week. That's kind of the catch-all range for the general population, 1.2 to 1.6. So when when this second tier of protein intake, it more applies to athletic folks, recreationally athletic folks, people who are training regularly and people and certainly I would say anybody who's who's dieting and that would be 1.6 and up and it's usually we stop seeing the benefits at around like 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight or a full a full gram per pound so so really the you you've got this 1.2 to 1.6 for the general pop uh, with not necessarily 
concerned with, I guess, fine tuning. And then we've got 1.6 to 2.2 for the more athletic population and, and people who are running hypocaloric conditions and, and trying to lose weight. So those are kind of the brackets that we have. And the debates surrounding the higher bracket is that, gosh, is that realistic? How do we, how do we achieve that? It's really hard for me to get a gram per pound. Well, you don't have to get a gram per pound. 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight or 0.7 grams per pound of body weight or per pound of target body weight. That's going to cover most people, like regardless of, of where you're at on that spectrum, that, that 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight appears to be the catch-all, sort of the go-to protein dose. If you want to cover everything from preserving lean body mass to making sure you're good health-wise to making sure you're good athletics-wise, it would kind of all converge on that 1.6 grams per kilogram or 0.7 grams per pound. And actionable as an actionable takeaway here, we're probably roughly talking about 30 grams on the low end to 50 grams, maybe on the higher end of protein per meal. Would you say that that's, yes, have that's I done, right. have I done my math there? <laughs> okay. Yes, you did. You did. No, that's, that's correct. So so the, the other part of the protein conversation, aside from total daily protein intake, it's like what, what's the optimal amount to consume per meal? And that, that varies with the goal because the, the fir first tier of importance is getting sufficient total daily protein. That if you do that, you've gotten 80, 90% of the game sewed up. So you're, you're, you don't necessarily have to worry about the other stuff. Now, the protein per meal question comes into play with folks who like like the elderly who have these just kind of naturally counterproductive habits with with regard to protein intake where they just kind of skip their like for example their breakfast protein will be very very small or it won't happen at all there'll be a, a marginal amount of protein at lunch and then dinner is where the the big protein hit comes in. And by the time they have that protein, they haven't accumulated enough protein through the course of the day to, to get their total daily needs. So the protein per meal thing can be a concern and a focus for the elderly population, but it can also be a concern for folks who want to, for whatever reasons, just maximally grow muscle. When your goal is to put on muscle, and that's your main goal, then it can be suboptimal to just think, in terms of hitting a total by the end of the day, because some people will have the tendency to just try to get it in in like two meals or in, in some more rare cases, like one meal. But that's not that's not the ticket to, to muscle growth. There is a per meal focus where my colleague Brad Schoenfeld and I, we wrote a paper um, called How Much Protein in a Single Meal Can Be Used for Muscle Building. And this is a, this is an article that's a free, it's an open access from the journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. And, and you can just Google Aragon, how much protein or Schoenfeld, how much protein. And it should be the first, I know that for Aragon, how much protein it's the first search result. And so we took a look at all the research on what gives the strongest muscle protein synthesis response. Like what protein dose 
gives the most robust acute anabolic response. And it kind of boils down to about 0.4 grams per kilogram of body weight, all the way to about 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. And that's like about like 0.2-ish to 0.3 grams per pound or so. And so, and it comes down to about 30 to 50 grams of protein. And so if you can get that dose, if you can get that in four times a day, then you would equal this kind of magic range, the 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. If you had four meals at 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight, and that's the way you maximize muscle growth. And that's only because there, there appears to be a ceiling of the acute anabolic response or of muscle protein synthesis seems to hit a ceiling at that dosing range. Hey, Bettys, I hope you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. We're going to take a squeak, a little short break, so you can hear a word from our sponsors. Protein is the only macronutrient requirement that changes as we age. In our 40s, 50s, and 60s, protein deficiency is a huge problem, but it doesn't have to be. If you want to build muscle, lose fat, keep your immune system strong, and have all-day energy, you should be eating at least 0.75 grams of protein per pound of body weight, and I'd actually argue it needs to be closer to one gram per pound of ideal body weight. So let's say you're in your 40s, you weigh 150 pounds, that means that you need to be having a bare minimum of 150 grams of protein every single day. So for me, in order for me to do that, I need to get in touch with my inner protein shake and supplement with a high quality protein supplement. Equip Foods Prime Protein is a complete beef protein with the nutritional equivalent of a four ounce grass fed beef. It's packed with collagen, gelatin, micronutrients your body needs to repair your joints and soft tissues after a heavy workout. There's no chemicals, fillers, binding agents, artificial colors, or sweeteners. And I use this every day after my resistance training workouts. I even bake with it. It tastes like dessert. It doesn't taste like beef. So head over to equipfoods.com forward slash better and use code better at checkout. It is going to give you a whopping 20% off of your entire order. Again, that's equipfoods.com forward slash better and use code better at checkout to take off 20% of your order. And I think that this recommendation, certainly for I mean, I think every woman, irrespective of age, but if particularly if you are in perimenopause and menopause, one of your primary goals should be to, at the very minimum, maintain your lean muscle mass, but ideally add to it over time. But I would say you were describing before sort of these suboptimal habits where the elderly might have some toast or something in the in the morning, and then they have like the steak or the big protein bolus, let's say, last the last meal of the day. I would say that most Americans and Canadians, which is where I am, I'm up in Canada, that is a very, like it's the bagel, it's the cereal, it's the it's the muffin with the coffee. This is a very typical standard American, standard Western um, kind of diet. So if we can start thinking about moving the protein bolus, a, a bigger protein bolus, at least in the, in the um, earlier part of the day. And I can say as a parent, I also notice that when my kids have protein, if they get the, if they eat their eggs first before I give them their toast or before I give them their avocado toast or whatever I'm giving them that morning, 
moods are better. Focus and concentration at school is augmented. And then they're, they they get along better. They're just not, I have boys, so there's always a perpetual soccer game in my house. So there's they're not fighting each other as much How as they're they your boys. They're 12 and 10, 12 and 10. Yeah, so they're- just little okay. rascals, right? Which I, which I, which I, which I love, right? I want to encourage, but I find that very, it is a very noticeable shift in their emotional regulation and how they interact with with people when they haven't had protein first, first thing in the morning, and then also first thing in the meal. So I will hold the rice back. I'll hold the avocado toast back before they have had their protein. And then once they finish the protein, they get, you know, whatever they want. And then by the time, you know, my little one also has a little bit of a carb, just like is a carb machine, will eat all the cereal if I let him. So it's like, you can have as much cereal as you want, honey, but you just have to have your eggs first. And so when he's done the eggs, magically doesn't really feel like the cereal anymore. Like he'll have a bite or two and then he's full. Yeah, it's, it's, that's a good tactic. And people don't realize the importance of, of getting enough protein just throughout the, the entire life cycle, throughout the different life stages. They'll point to research and or they'll point to papers saying that, oh, we got to lower the protein, lower the protein for longevity. And they don't realize that this stuff is based on fruit flies and, and worms and and rodents and, and crickets. <laughs> I mean, it's like the, the, the protein and longevity data set is really not a human data set. And there's, there's just observational data. I believe it was put out by Longo and his colleagues showing that through, through the, through the, through middle age or through younger to older or younger to middle age adulthood, the protein needs are lower. And then like from 60 ish, 65 and up, it's suddenly the, the protein needs go up. And this is just observational data. This is not an intervention data. And it's like, well, how about if you kept protein optimal through the whole freaking life cycle? Right. It's just right. like some right. really type of stuff that we're overlooking and we're in denial because there's this whole low protein narrative running through the, the longevity community that it really makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's talk about pre-bed protein. Then I promise we're going to get to the acute anabolic window. At the time, I definitely want to talk about that as well. In the uh, paper that I was uh, talking about as well, the your position stand on nutrient timing, one of the things that you talked about, which sort of flies in the face of some, we'll say, intermittent fasting trains of thought, is that consuming protein, I think in the paper you'd specified casein protein, somewhere in the range of 30 to 40 grams, can acutely increase MPS over the course of the night without negatively impacting fat metabolism, which I think is something that we don't talk about a lot. I know a lot of when I was, when I was competing, I competed in a figure, like a figure class of figure competition back before I had, had children. That was one of the things I had to do in the evening was have some, have some protein with a little, little carbs, but like mainly like kind of like a cottage cheese. And I'd put some, whatever, like something to sweeten it up or something. Talk a little bit about pre-bed protein and why this is another consideration that we might think about when we're thinking about optimizing muscle protein synthesis and body composition or increasing lean muscle mass, I should say. Okay. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, before I get into that, I I'm trying to imagine what year you, you could have done figure right now, figure, figure now versus let's say 
five, six, seven years ago. Okay. Yeah. Figure in 2008 is bikini now, basically. All right. I mean, at least, yeah. I mean, there's just more and more muscle being piled on as, as the years go on in, in the, the female physique divisions, there's five divisions now. And it's just like, everybody's just sort of losing track. But yeah, that's, that's cool that, that you competed and yeah, pre-bed protein intake was a tactic to preserve muscle mass mainly. And the, the whole theory behind it was the sleep cycle is just inherently catabolic because it's, it's essentially a fasting cycle. And so if you could provide a sort of a trickling in of amino acid availability through a slow digestive protein before bed, then you would wake up not in a state catabolism, but you'd be in sort of this certain net anabolic state where muscle protein synthesis could have occurred overnight. And that's the whole theory and the tactic behind pre-bed protein. And, and naturally, people theorize that, well, if we have a slow digesting protein, a uh, nice good whack of it before bed, um, then we would be able to sustain elevations in blood amino acid availability throughout the whole night. And so casein was the choice to do that because it was a slow digesting protein. It was almost like this IV drip effect. Um, and yeah, as far as we can see that, that is a legit tactic. If you are on the high end of the goals spectrum, especially a competitor, um, having a slow digesting hit of protein before bed is one of the tactics that you can pull. It's one of those stops you can pull to optimize training adaptations and preserve muscle tissue. The the fact that that pre-bed protein did not reduce like, like normal fat oxidation that occurs overnight is kind of a mysterious and and amazing thing. (laughs) So, so yeah, it's like, it's one of those those high end tactics. I it's it's icing on the cake though, I would call it. It's not necessarily something that would make or break the general population, but for the competitive po- population, there might be something to it. Yeah, and I I wanted to talk about this in the context of intermittent fasting a little bit and I alluded to this before. This is a position that I've very much softened when intermittent fasting, I first started becoming very interested in around 2015, maybe 2016, wrote a couple of articles on it and was, it's a a relatively new tool, at least to me at the time. And I guess maybe my personality is such that I was like, I'm all in for this. Like I am all in for IF and it's like, I'm going to get the autophagy and the cellular senescence and I'm going to go all in for that. Of course, under maybe overlooking that there are many other ways that you can start the process of autophagy, lifting weights, one of them. And I just want to read, this is from you, uh, an article uh, that you wrote, Does Timing Matter? A Narrative Review of Intermittent Fasting Variants and Their Effects on Body Weight and Body Composition. And then I'll let you kind of explain it. Fasting cycles are clearly capable of antagonizing or impeding the maintenance or growth of muscle mass to varying degrees, depending on the length and frequency of the fasting cycle. Further, these findings underscore the crucial dependence of muscle on sufficient energy availability for the goal of maintenance and growth. And so you go on to talk about this 0.4 gigs per kg up to 0.6 gigs per uh, per kilogram. 
And I, I wanted to read this out and allow you to sort of expand potentially and, and comment on it because I often in practice will see the female who is tethered to an 18-6 or a 16-8 fasting, let's say, schedule for herself. Maybe she is under fueling and maybe she is exercising. Iris tends to be more cardio, but let's just pretend that she's also just lifting weights as well. And this is the the individual that I at least clinically see hypercortisolemia. We have change in her fat distribution where maybe it used to be, or she might even be lean, but she just has more of like that cortisol belly, we'll say, or more of a ectopic fat distribution. And she's looking to kind of get that down. I wondered if you might comment on, again, coming back to this flexibility of thought around not trying to white knuckle it all the time. Like just because you've set out to do a 16, eight, maybe, maybe, maybe we can be a little gentler. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that when people try a dietary approach, like 16, eight, for example, or any of the intermittent fasting variants, whether it's 16, eight, whether it's an alternate day fasting type of thing, or whether it's some sort of whole day fasting scheme, like like five, two through the course of the week, they find out, I think it takes about, typically it takes about a month to, to see how you take to it. And certainly with women, you, you have to be able to gauge at, at least a month. So you can compare the same points in the menstrual cycle, how you may be being affected by it. I think that in the beginning, people have to realize that the fasting variants are not something that everybody needs to get on. It's not, it's not necessarily an optimal thing to, to really try to cinch down the feeding window as much as you can because of the various reasons people read about. You mentioned autophagy. You mentioned like the, these nebulous kind of clinical benefits of, of, of not eating. Well, yeah, they're there and they're, I mean, the theory is there, but... But how do you measure it? How do you measure autophagy? As far as I'm concerned, I don't know how you do that. Right, right. There's, I mean, you can measure the the markers of of autophagy. You can measure the protein-based markers, the the autophagosomes, as it were. You can can measure various markers of, of autophagy. But the thing is, autophagy isn't one of these more is better types of things. Like you can take the the concept of autophagy like too far. I mean, the crossover point would be a phenomenon called autosis, which is runaway cell death. And that is preceded by autophagy. And so uh, autophagy is something that is better looked at as an algorithm, a physiological algorithm. That's just, it's running in the background. It's at constant flux up or down, depending on the various stress um, vectors throughout the course of the day or the week, the physiological stress vectors like autophagy will just like rise up. It'll ebb and it will flow just like think of another physiological algorithm in the background, glucagon levels or insulin levels. There's this sort of, sort of seesaw rise and flow depending on the physiological stress vectors through the day. And so it's not a more is better thing with glucagon, for example, just like it isn't a more is better thing with uh, autophagy is a physiological stress response. It's a catabolic process. 
and it's necessary for survival of the organism, but it's definitely definitely not more is better. There's a lot of autophagy going on as somebody starves to death, for example. There is a rise in autophagy with any kind of exercise, whether it's endurance exercise or strength exercise, there's autophagy going on. Autophagy is elevated during hypocaloric conditions, whether those dieting conditions are intermittent, like a fasting type of model, or whether those dieting conditions are linear daily caloric restriction, both conditions elevate autophagy. So the thing to consider with something like autophagy is what people are chasing with, with fasting and intermittent fasting is that autophagy occurs with exercise, but the thing about exercise versus fasting is that exercise is generally almost always going to be a win-win. Whereas fasting, depending on the population, depending on the length of the fast, depending on the circumstances, can be a win-lose, particularly as it affects lean body mass. This is less of an issue with the time-restricted feeding models, especially if there's a resistance training program in place. But if somebody is, let's say, they're sub-optimizing protein and they're running a net caloric deficit by the end of the week, and they're not necessarily lifting enough in terms of load or, or volume, and they decide to alternate day fast, well, you could put lean body mass at risk. And this is this has been seen in the literature quite a bit. And so fasting, while you, yes, you are elevating autophagy, it can be a zero-sum game because you're putting lean body mass at box that we're going for. Longevity-wise is preserve lean mass and strength, stay physically active, maintain good body composition. And how do you do that? Well, it's not necessarily through just fasting. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I kind of went, went off there a little bit. So bring me back. Bring no, me back. I, appre I appreciate, I appreciate it because I, I also, one of the things I think we need to be thinking about in addition to preserving muscle mass is also bone density, which is also, you have too much osteoclastic activity, again, a catabolic process relative to osteoblastic activity. And you're going to find that your bones are going to be weak and they're going to be more likely to bend and fracture and break. And certainly as you are moving into a lower in menopause, when you're moving into a lower, the hormonal environment, let's say the hormonal milieu that you're living in, you have less anabolic hormones anyway. So you have less testosterone net net, you have less estrogen net net. We have to really be thinking about preserving muscle tissue, but also the scaffolding, right? That holds up the muscle tissue, which is the bone. So I, I agree with you where I think that the over, when we're, we're always thinking about spring cleaning, you do have to give your body substrate. And it's, it's, it's interesting, even with women that I work with who are looking to lose weight, when we start feeding them more, they've been on these like 1100 calorie, whatever diets forever. And then you start giving them and they're like, I can't believe it, but I'm, I'm lighter on the scale like a couple days in. And it's like, yeah, well, you're giving yourself, you're giving yourself substrate that your cells can actually use. So now you're not getting rid of, let's say functional active tissue like your muscles or your organs or your bones, right? So I think that maybe this is a separate conversation. I, I, I'm going to bring it back to the, the acute anabolic window. I promise we'll get there. But I do think that it's worth 
mentioning, and I will continue to mention this on the podcast, that we we can't as women certainly there's an, if you're in a caloric surplus and you don't have the lifestyle to support that, of course, we're going to accumulate excess. We're going to accumulate adipose tissue. We're going to accumulate things that maybe we don't want to be. But I think that when you are lifting in particular, which is something that is, it's, it's, it's something that I cherish, not only for the gains with a Z, right? It's not only for like being able to, <laughs> it's not only to be a bro, but it's also like, I cher- I cherish my time at the gym, like the mental benefits that I have. The other day, we just had a time, the time change. Did, did the time change where you were? Where are you? Where are you I'm located? In, I'm in California. So You're yes, not- we, do, we did just have the daylight savings thing. Okay. So by the time this uh, podcast is produced, this will be a bit of a, a, a moot point, but I was annoyed the next day because I didn't have enough time to do my long workout. I had soccer duty with the boys and stuff. And so I was pissed, but I went down, did the workout. And sometimes when I'm working out, I have space for that we'll call it sacred rage, right? Because there's no other real place for that to come out, right? Except at the uh, weights in the weight room, right? I, I love <laughs> weights for that, so. <laughs> you you brought up osteoporosis and 80% of the osteoporosis cases in the general population are women. And that is a, that's a big problem. And a lot of osteoporosis would have, would relate to, a lack of energy availability and nutrient availability through the lifespan, because it is a cumulative thing where you're putting money in the bone bank throughout your life. And yeah, so very important nutrition, protein, micronutrition, and resistance training throughout the the lifespan is super important. All right. So when I was when I was doing figure, which is now maybe not even bikini, I don't even know. It was with I was in New York. I was who was it that I competed with? And NPC NPC was the was the I don't even think they're around anymore. So I did like the tri state, what have you. Anyway, when my coach was like, "Listen, as soon as you're done weight training, you have 15 minutes. <laughs> like you have 15 minutes to get some protein and some carbs. So I would finish my training. I'd literally go to the juice bar, order the protein shake and like run to the change room, change, and then come back. So I could get in this like protein bolus, carbohydrate bolus within 15 minutes of finishing my training. We, we were talking earlier about total protein over the course of the day and then nuancing mm. it a little bit further for those of us who are looking to to optimize for muscle protein synthesis and lean muscle mass that maybe we want to be thinking about nutrient timing and spreading that bolus or spreading that dosage, let's say, out over the course of the day. For those of us who are resistance training as well, is there an acute anabolic timing window where we have a certain amount of time where the muscle, let's say, is more receptive to substrate for remodeling. Yeah. So the that post-exercise anabolic window concept, we we have to kind of go back into the into history and let's talk about how it came about and how it evolved into the physical culture because um, it's important to know those things to be able to understand why everybody's trying to get that that way and dextrose down as soon as possible afterwards. So this is rooted in research back in the late 
80s by uh, John Ivey and, and, and Robert Portman, where they were looking at the rate of glycogen, so glycogen being the stored form of carbohydrate in the muscle and in the liver, but in this context, stored carbohydrate in the muscle, how can we resynthesize that? How can we restock that as quickly as possible once we've depleted that? So what they did was they would compare two groups of people. So this is after an overnight fast, they would deplete glycogen in in both groups. So they would put them through almost two hours of continuous moderate and high intensity cycling, almost two hours of it, tap out glycogen in the quads, and then measure the rate of glycogen resynthesis from either immediate carbohydrate intake, like a substantial amount of immediate carbohydrate intake, or a significant delay in carbohydrate intake, let's say a two-hour delay, three-hour, four-hour delay. And, and they would just measure the rate of glycogen restocking in those, those two models, the immediate carbohydrate model and the delayed carbohydrate model. And predictably, if you delay carbohydrate intake, then at, let's say, the four-hour mark or the eight-hour mark, you may have significantly less restocked carbohydrate or glycogen within the muscles. So the importance of this and the application of this really only comes down to endurance athletes who rely on glycogen availability for um, exercise performance. And this really only applies when you look at a, a short time frame, like eight hours. That really only applies to days where you have more than one glycogen depleting event, like a multi-stage endurance race, like triathlon, for example. So the original post-exercise anabolic window had everything to do with restocking glycogen as quickly as possible because you, number one, you depleted it in the first place with an exhaustive endurance type of uh, activity. And secondly, you were going to use those same glycogen depleted muscles within the same day to compete again. So that is the root of the post-exercise anabolic window. It had everything to do with endurance competition. And so what happened from that point was John Ivey and Robert Portman et al. started looking at post-exercise protein and carbohydrate and how that affects muscle protein synthesis. And so what they protein, like a small amount of protein and a large amount of carbohydrate, then you can elevate muscle protein synthesis to a higher degree than having carbohydrate by itself. And so they're saying, aha, so now we know how to restock glycogen as quickly as possible by having a highly glycemic, quickly as or highly insulinemic carbohydrate source ASAP after training, and that will restock glycogen the fastest. And now we're looking at muscle protein synthesis, which should kickstart the recovery and growth process of muscle, muscle tissue. And, and so Hey, we've, we've found the Holy grail here. What you need to do is have a quickly digesting protein and a quickly digesting carbohydrate source. And hopefully in the, or optimally in this liquid solution, as soon as possible, post-exercise, 
Because if you miss that window, then you're going to compromise recovery, you're going to compromise growth, and you're going to compromise just the optimal adaptations to training. And so that was the that was the theory. Okay, so that was back in the early 2000s when they put out their book, Nutrient Timing, when Portman and Ivy put out their book, Nutrient Timing. And so what happened from the early 2000s to the late 2000s, starting to breach the 2010s, what happened was a series of studies that essentially tested out that hypothesis, the anabolic window hypothesis. And the way that they tested it out is they compared different timing schemes of protein relative to the training bout. So whereas it was a known thing that glycogen restocking happens maximally if you don't wait and you have a highly insulinemic, highly glycemic carbohydrate source, what wasn't strongly established was the protein timing thing for muscle growth. So from the early 2000s to the late 2000s, we tested this out through, not we, not my group. My group actually came in in 2013, 2014, and we started testing this out after we saw that there, that the results were inconsistent. People were growing just the same, whether they consumed protein immediately after training or whether they waited a couple of hours to have their protein after training. They, they were having the same degree of muscle size and strength gains. And so my colleagues and I, we took a look at all the research, like over, over a dozen studies that looked at protein timing and the so-called anabolic window. And we found that it actually didn't matter when relative to the training bout that you consume protein as long as total daily protein was 1.6, 1.7 grams per kilogram of body weight. And so for, for the listeners, a meta-analysis is when you look at multiple studies and you pool the findings together, you pool the, the results together, and you get kind of an aerial view or a read on what direction the evidence leans. Is it in favor? Is it leaning in favor of the, the narrow post-exercise anabolic window or is it not? And we found that it, no, it, it, it didn't. And so what my colleagues and I did was we decided to test out that idea directly. And so we ran a randomized controlled trial that compared immediate pre-exercise feeding with immediate post-exercise feeding of protein of 25, 25 grams of protein in a, within a liquid MRP type meal. So it was protein and in a, in a liquid, it quickly absorbed form. And there was no difference in muscle size and strength gains over a period of weeks with immediate pre-exercise protein feeding versus immediate post-exercise protein feeding. And so subjective, we, any subjective performance differences? No, <laughs> no, not even that. The strength gains were the same. And, and by the way, we also did a study that compared fed cardio with fasted cardio on body composition and we found and, no difference either. And no difference. So that's, that's kind of an aside, <laughs> there you go. but um, yeah, yeah, yeah no, no difference with it, with fed and fasted cardio. But so, all right. So back to that, this 
anabolic window concept, the post-exercise anabolic window concept. We always kind of doubted it for one, because the studies from the early 2000s to the late 2000s were showing that it doesn't, doesn't matter. And number two, when you think about the timing of, of your meals, you're really shooting to achieve nutrient availability in the blood. So it's not about when you actually consume this, the, the food, it's when those downstream metabolites, those nutrients, when they show up in, in maximally in blood circulation. And so whenever you consume a meal, those blood substrates are going to become maximally available in like at soonest, like 45 minutes. So about an hour is when amino acids peak in the blood after a good hit of protein. So we're thinking, gosh, like why are people so focused on the post-exercise window and getting it in like what you experienced within like 15, 30 minutes of your workout when when you do that, those substrates are going to peak in the blood an hour later. Right. So it's more like if you want to take advantage of the anabolic window, then think more in terms of substrate av availability in the blood. So like the pre-exercise meal, if you have, let's say 30, 45 grams of protein, let's say a quickly digesting protein that who is going to have amino acid levels peak in the blood like 45 to 60 minutes later. If you have that pre-exercise, then that kind of becomes the, the post-exercise meal. If you're, if you have it immediately pre and your training bout is about an hour, then you've kind of created this ideal post-exercise <laughs> Right. Because it's available once you're done. I love that. Available once you're done. Mm. And so what we concluded is that, look, if you want to nitpick and you want to take advantage of these temporal opportunities to optimize nutrient availability, then you would basically stick your workout in between two, between two protein-rich meals. That's that way you're covering all your bases. If you really want to, if you really want to pull all the stops. And so I have this, I, I said this on, on, on the forums and it kept getting quoted. So if you're still burping up your pre-workout meal, when your workout is over, then chances are you don't need to run to the locker room and slam your way dextrose shake right. because you've already created this anabolic environment post-exercise with your pre-exercise meal. So just kind of boiling things down to practical terms, it's like the peri-exercise period, in quotes, is the period between your two protein feedings, okay, that, that the pre-exercise protein feeding and the post-exercise protein feeding. And we're talking protein now because Carbohydrate is mainly more, it's more of a, an endurance type of thing, mainly a, an athletic performance type of thing where glycogen is depleted. And with resistance training, you'd be lucky to tap out 40% of your glycogen, even with a decently high volume of sets. So the peri-exercise period, try not to stretch that out more than, more than I would say four to five four to five hours, six hours at the most, if, if your goal is to gain muscle. So the exercise bout would be, it'd be in between 
in the, the peri-exercise period, which is framed by these two protein feedings, try not to stretch that peri-exercise window more than about five, six-ish hours. And that's really all you need to, to care about. You don't have to care about this narrow 30-minute, 45-minute, 60-minute post-exercise anabolic window. Although I would add to that, Stephanie, that the people who do slam their whey dextrose shake post-exercise, they're not doing anything bad. They're not harming anything. It's just that it's not necessarily doing doing anything what they're, what better than just ha having yeah. a regularly scheduled set of meals. Yeah. So, so I mean, it is an opportunity to feed. It's an opportunity to get nutrients in and it's, it's never a bad thing, but it was just unnecessary. And so you, you could drive home in traffic and eat your steak and potatoes instead of having your way and, and, uh, quick carb source at, at the gym, you could actually drive home and eat your normal meal and still grow just as fast. So I have three questions now that you've said that. Yeah, <laughs> I had two. And now I have three. So okay. I'm thinking of the woman like myself, who I go to the gym before my kids wake up. And I'm back before they I'm back before they wake up. So I'm at the gym relatively early in the morning. So I'm thinking about other women that may say, well, the only time that I have to work out is in the morning. And I don't necessarily like to have a pre-workout. Like myself, I do find that eating at 4.45 in the morning, it's just not, I don't have an appetite at that time. So I, I throw back some coffee and then I head over, I head over to the gym with some water or whatever. It's usually some, elect, maybe some electrolytes in it. So would for that woman asking for a friend, asking for myself, and also for the other women who work out in the morning, is that pre-bed protein then, does that become more important so that we're kind of sandwiching, let's say, the first thing that you do in the morning is your resistance training or whatever movement program that you've designed for yourself, and then you have this pre-bed protein and then that post-workout feeding window. So then you're making sure that the two, like the two protein boluses there are going to be sufficient enough to be able to give the, the muscles what they need for, for reparation. That's a great point. And just, just thinking about it on the spot, I would, I would agree with you. I would say yes. And I'd also just put out the reminder that when we're talking about the peri-exercise period and not stretching it out more than five, five, six hours, that's for somebody with the main goal of muscle growth. Yes. You know what I mean? Like maintenance of muscle tissue. And if you don't have necessarily have goals of muscle growth, then you wouldn't have to worry about that. So like, like, for example, in your case, if your sole mission in life was to put on muscle as quickly as possible, I would encourage you to have a, have a quick dose of protein. Well, you or know, would maybe, it be in, could pre, you do it in the, during the could, workout, like some, you EAAs could do it during something. the workout. Yeah, yeah. You could do it during the workout. You could throw, throw some way into um, a solution, but you know, even, even then, as I think about it, it's like the way the body works, if the way that you, you described, you're probably going to have a stronger anabolic response to your post-exercise meal than somebody who, let's say, ate some breakfast at 4.45 a.m. <laughs> and, and we know this because there, there's a 2010 study by Del DK and colleagues where they looked at anabolic signaling with a with a fasted training bout versus a fed 
training bout, they looked at the anabolic response to the post-exercise meal. And the anabolic response to the post-exercise meal under the um, fasted training conditions was significantly stronger because the body kind of, it, it sort of senses this, this sort of energy and nutrient crisis. And so it's going to sponge up <laughs> nutrients and ramp up anabolic processes a little bit harder in the case of fasted training. So it all kind of comes out even. <laughs> well, it's kind of what we were talking about at the top of the hour, right? It's like you can give the body a whole different whack of circumstances and you're going to have the, for, for the most part, an appropriate response most of the time, given a, 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 a myriad of different scenarios. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. The other question I had was, where does creatine fit in? So this is something that I always have in my post. There's like the protein. I usually have some oats or something. And then there's some creatine in the shake. Does it matter again pre-post? Is it just that peri-exercise window again that, that you're referring to that really matters that you're getting enough creatine over the course of the day or I guess to saturate the muscle cell and then just the maintenance of it? Yes, he's nodding. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that the answer to that question is is a little bit nuanced because when it takes some time, like let's say somebody's never supplemented with creatine before. So it takes some time for the muscle stores, muscle creatine stores to become loaded or saturated. So that's achieved by either this loading phase, the classic loading phase where you do 20 to 25 grams for a week for seven days. And then your, your cre muscle creatine stores are saturated by the end of that week. So if you do that and you get that loading phase expedited and done and out of the way, then the timing of your creatine maintenance dose, that three to five gram maintenance dose doesn't matter because you're already, already saturated. Now, if you want to expedite the saturation process, then there's a little bit quicker saturation that happens when you have the creatine post-exercise. But then again, that that doesn't matter once you're saturated. <laughs> so, Okay, good. I love that. Yeah. So I've gotten to my second question. Maybe we can finish with our time together talking a little bit about just following on this idea of protein and the protein hierarchy. So We've been talking about protein powders, right? Or, well, I've been talking about protein. I hope we've been both been talking about protein powders because <laughs> the post-anabolic, like my post-exercise is a protein powder. Um, but what are sort of the top tier, if we're, if we're thinking about top quality, good quality protein sources, do you think about it like top tier? These are the best ones that we want to be thinking about. Um, I know there's been some discussion. And I believe it was Brad Schoenfeld who was talking, I haven't read the study yet, but he was talking about a recent study that uh, he was talking about on Instagram. And it was like, oh my gosh, I can't even read these comments. Like this is sometimes the comment section. I feel like you sometimes you need to, you need to have to pay to make a comment because I feel like they would change. But he was, he was talking about these two groups train. They were intermediately trained, trained them for 10 weeks. One was animal protein. One was plant protein. The mm. net net was no difference. So there was no net difference in, in, I think it was strength and, and net muscle mass gain between the two mm. 
And they had, I think the only confounding variable potentially was that they were both supplemented with creatine, although you can make an argument for that either way. So at the risk of pissing everybody off, (laughs) (laughs) um, animal and plant protein. So I've had, I've, I've been, and I've been asking since, since he put, I, I was like, okay, I have to sit down and read this study because it really has shaken my understanding of animal versus plant protein. And I was, I've been having sort of this like private conversation with Simon Hill. I'm trying to get him on the show because I would love to have his perspective on it as well, who is very much like you can have whatever. And he sort of biases towards more plant proteins as, as more of maybe a viable option for longevity. But I would, I would love your opinion because I've always held the premise that animal proteins are superior to plants for bioavailability, for caloric consumption, for the full complement of amino acids. But it seems like this study flies in the face of that. It seems like there mm-hmm. is, doesn't seem like there's a negligible difference. I would love your thoughts on that. Okay. Well, let's first start off by ribbing Simon. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Simon, he's, he's such a nice feller. Um, he's such a hippie. So yeah, yeah. But them trees, you know, he's he's getting real strong and jacked from them trees. Um, so that study that you mentioned by Montaigne or Montaigne and and colleagues, that, that recent study that just got published initially, I was really excited to hear about it because I was anticipating that they would kind of upgrade from the limitations of the previous study done by Hevia, Lorraine, and colleagues in, in 2021. And so going back to, to Hevia and uh, Hevia, Lorraine et al., they did essentially the same study, but without creatine. <laughs> and a different protein source to supplement. So they supplemented their folks with soy protein. They fortified the vegan group with soy soy protein isolate, I, I believe it was. And the strengths of, of that study were that they finally did a resistance training study, a progressive resistance training, comparing full vegan with an omnivore group. So the studies prior to heavy Lorraine and colleagues comparing the uh, or or investigating the plant protein versus animal protein question typically just compared two different omnivorous regimes one supplemented with a plant-based protein and one supplemented with an animal-based protein like it could it's usually like soy versus whey here okay right but they're both omnivorous so you're only looking at one or two protein doses in the day being either plant or animal so it's not really answering the vegan versus omnivore question. So we only have two studies answering the vegan versus omnivore question in the context of progressive resistance training designed to maximize muscle hypertrophy and, and strength. So, but you know, mainly muscle hypertrophy. So we only have two studies and the study that you, you alluded to is the latest one. And it really is kind of a bummer that they used creatine in this study because creatine does, uh, the addition of creatine does a couple of things that, 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 that leave open questions. 
they don't close the loop on on what we're wondering about things. So, all right, creatine is an anabolic factor that you're adding to the mix. Creatine is a known robust anabolic agent. I mean, it's really the only the only supplement that robustly works. It's only legal supplement that robustly works for augmenting muscle size and strength gains. And so when you add that into the mix, then you're really, you're, you're introducing this agent that can potentially mask the smaller effects of differences in protein type. So not only do you have the potential to mask those effects, but with creatine, 20 to 30% of humans are non-responders to creatine supplementation. So, and this can be through a, a variety of different reasons, you know, but before getting into that, if there were more non-responders or, or more responders on one group versus the other, so if there was an uneven split of responders and non-responders in the group, that can introduce confounding variation or, or, or noise to the study. Mm-hmm. So if, if the aim is to l- look and see if creatine, we'll see what that does. Okay, great. But you're going to need another group in the study that is not on creatine or another two groups that aren't on creatine. So you can test two different protein types. I would say that they should have just left creatine out of the study. So we can do what the study aimed to do, which was compare protein sources. And so the the, the authors said that, okay, we're putting creatine in here to level the playing field because the creatine content or lack of is the main handicap of the plant-based protein. So therefore, let's level the playing field there and then compare it. I'm thinking, why not see if the mycoprotein is a fungus-based protein, the trade name corn, Q-U-O-R-N, that's what they fortified the uh, vegan diet with. Why not see if that, how that stacks up against the omnivorous diet without creatine? Because not everybody can do it just economically, and it's not always even available in stock nowadays. So why not make the study more generalizable, more externally valid, and frankly, more practical, make the findings more practical. But now we can't say, we can't confidently say that the playing field was leveled because mycoprotein is such a great thing. We have to go, oh, maybe... Maybe creatine masked the effects, or maybe there was an uneven split of responders and non-responders in the group. So once again, like I was saying, we're we're left with a bunch of questions now because they added the creatine. And then there's another factor that, that needs to be addressed. So the issue of training status is another thing that people will debate. People will debate the crap out of that too. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, of course, vegans are going to want to wave around the new Montine et al. study. And of course, the Heavier Lorraine study as, ah, we got you guys. We got you guys. All we need to do is consume enough total protein, and then it doesn't matter what the protein sources are, plant or animal. Okay. Well, the nuance and, and the caveat to that is, with this latest study, they used this fungus-based protein, this mycoprotein or brand-named corn, and 
Corn might be a special kind of protein. Mycoprotein might be a particularly anabolic plant-based protein because there's acute data showing that it raises muscle protein synthesis to a higher degree than milk protein. And so- <laughs> Wow, okay. And and so- But that's not readily available. That's not at your- that's not a vega or that's not a, a readily available, yeah. let's say, plant-based protein that someone might just go to the, the shop to get. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not. And it's cost two to three times more than whey per, per gram of protein. Mm -hmm. And and so when people make these generalizations based on this recent study, you have to realize, well, that might be a little bit hasty because we're looking at a specific type of protein that the diet was fortified with. Mm -hmm. And of course, we have the, the confounding variable of, of creatine added to the mix. Okay. And then the other factor that we need to talk about is training status. So you can take untrained subjects and run an experiment where you're going to test two different protein types. Well, you're kind of screwed from the beginning because untrained subjects are going to make these robust newbie gains regardless of the nutritional protocol. So if you're testing these sort of fine-tuned differences in the food selection and in, in the protein source, then use trained subjects, use resistance trained subjects, preferably use highly trained or decently trained resistance, resistance trainees who've been at it for regularly for at least a year and then run the experiment and see if there's something special. So right now with the studies that we've got, we have the problem of potentially untrained subjects. So in Montine and colleagues, this latest vegan versus Omni study, the eligibility criteria for, for participating in the study is you had to have had six months of train of resistance training experience within the prior three years oh. to the start of, start of the trial. So it's like, oh man, come on, man. Come on, yeah. bro. Yeah, yeah. And so those are my issues with that. And okay, so now the strengths of the Montine and Collie study, the, they pulled out all the stops. I mean, they measured muscle fiber size. They had a three-day initial phase before the 10-week longitudinal phase where they measured muscle protein synthesis. They made sure that total protein was equated between groups at an optimal level. So the target was 1.8 grams per kilogram of body weight, and the subjects ended up eating closer to two, the two point, 2.2, I believe it was 2.1 to 2.3 grams per kilogram of body weight that the subjects ended up eating. So the, that all of that was definitely optimal, but we're still left with those issues. And so, so the, what I would take home from the existing plant versus animal-based protein studies which we have two to really sink our teeth in. Some people bring up uh, another study called the swap meat study, which was omni versus vegan, but it wasn't, there was no progressive resistance training program in there. There was just push up, basically local endurance capacity. So we, we can leave that, that study out of, of this particular conversation. I would say that the, it's still unanswered. I mean, it's looking good. It's looking good for, for vegans who are willing to make sure they consume 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight and up if you're untrained 
if you're not necessarily highly trained, it's looking just fine. And a lot of the general population is not going to be these trained folks that we're seeking out to put in these studies to see if there's anything truly special about um, one type of protein or another. But there's also the issue that, okay, there's more to life and, and health than seeing how much protein, how much muscle a given group can gain in 10 to 12 weeks. What, what does the long-term say? I mean, what are people missing out on nutritionally or micronutritionally and not even essential nutrient wise? Mm -hmm. What are they missing out on by avoiding all, all animal foods? What are, what are some of those factors that might come into play with either optimizing or, or sub-optimizing the aging process? Now, I, I'll be the first to admit that along with these potentially beneficial compounds in animal foods that you're not getting in plant foods, you're also getting the potentially adverse compounds in animal foods that you're not getting in the plant foods. Correct. But there's a way around that and there's a way to to optimize it. So I'm I'm 51. I keep forgetting. I'm I keep thinking I'm I'm just going to be 50 forever. I I'm 51 and I don't see myself going vegan anytime soon. Why? Because I call me selfish. I don't want to suboptimize optimal aging. <laughs> so, so yeah, that, that is something that's going to piss people off and that, that is going to anger um, your vegan audience. But uh, I am, I don't, not I don't really have a vegan sold. audience. They just show up on my Instagram. <laughs> I, don't, oh, I, nice. don't really, I don't really have a vegan audience, but I do, but I am sensitive. I am sensitive to the vegetarians and the, I've tried to, I, I, I guess my clinical concern around someone who's a long-term vegetarian or long-term vegan is some of these nutrition deficiencies that we almost invariably always see like B vitamin status. We see a whole complement. Iron is usually an issue. There's usually thyroid issues that I sort of go along with long-term, we'll say meat restriction or leaving meat out entirely. That's what I've, I've often find B6 and B12 nutrient deficiency. I've, I find all of these different things. So in, in some ways, I think, and it depends on the, on the person, certainly ethics and religion and cultural sensitivities, I think are, are important. But if mm -hmm. someone is willing to at the very minimum, if they are experiencing, I've had women hair falling out and the I, the most common story for, that I often see is that someone moves from like whatever diet they were following before, call it the standard American, whatever it is. And then they move into vegan and they feel great because they are having all these whole foods, right? They're having lots of plants, they're having all, and all the, the, the xenohormetic effects that come with that and the polyphenols and all, all the things. And then they sort of ride the wave. They ride sort of the arc of, of benefits. And then they sort of find themselves on the other side of the U-curve where it has gone from being a therapeutic intervention to being maladaptive. And I would say that this happens in the keto community as well. I, st I talk a lot about the ketogenic diet. People feel great on keto. They drop a lot of initial water weight and inflammation goes down and then they ride keto for way too long. And then what ends up happening is people say, oh, I just, you know what? I'm not doing it the way I was when I first started. I just have to do keto. I have to get stricter with myself. I have to do veganism more or whatever the intervention is. And then it's what's happened is you've just, you've just, you need to, the, the diet that worked for you, let's say when you were metabolically ill or hormonally deranged, or there was some weight loss, whatever objective is not necessarily the same diet that you need to follow when 
you have rid yourself of those ail- ailments. So that's that's where I sort of fall on it. And I think that veganism, yes. like keto, can be good as a therapeutic intervention temporarily. And I, like you, I I enjoy steak probably too much. And, but I'm, I'm also okay with that. I'm also, I've made peace with the idea that there's another life that's helping to sustain mine and I'm very grateful for it. And I think that there's a conversation, Rob Wolf on the show has, has talked about regenerative agriculture and how we can have these sustainable, maybe more ethical practices around, around meat in general. Now, when you talk to people in the space, like from, from all ends of it, all ends of the spectrum. There's even when you talk to the carnivore folks, a lot of them are ex vegans. <laughs> and right. one of the reasons obviously would be that some, some people have a tendency to just gravitate towards extremes. They right. just can't do, they can't do anything within the gray scale. And then there's also the, the distinct possibility that with some people, maybe a lot of people, no matter how much you think you're supplementing the shortcomings of a completely animal-free diet, you simply are not going to be getting the health effects that you're looking for. And a lot of folks have expressed this, and a lot of people have exited veganism because of this. And that's that's just a reality. You can explain it away, and you can, if, if you're a a vegan evangelist, you're going to have these reasons and these potential solutions of how to actually achieve that, get all the supplements in there. But the fact of the matter is a lot of people tried and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And they did feel better and their health did get restored from including animal foods into their diet. And so that that is just the reality of, of the matter. And, and you know what? I don't see a lot of, I don't see a lot of vegans who are parents with kids. I think they're <laughs> they're they're kind of focusing on on these things that that people with with pressing human concerns are 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 a little bit preoccupied with. Yeah. So, but yeah, that that I don't know. I mean, the the that may be a value judgment, and uh, it, it it's something that that is sort of off 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 the side. But but yeah, vi- animal versus plant protein. I am not. I'm not convinced yet. And and if there was a high stakes client or athlete that I was working with, um, and if he or she insisted on being vegan, I would still give them 20%. I would still assign them about 20% more protein, total daily protein, than I would an omnivorous person. Just to err on the safe side. And, and there's other things to talk about there. I mean, Collagen is an animal source food that that vegans aren't getting. And there's <laughs> there's research that's piling up on why that might be a bad idea to have a collagen-free diet. And so, yeah, there's there's different things that, that we can talk about with that too. Yeah. And I I asked you two of the questions. May I think I got to two and a half of the questions that I had set out for today. So I would <laughs> and I you've just been so generous with your time. And I feel like maybe we can maybe we can say there will be a part two. I would love to have you back on the show if you would be so willing uh, to come on and we can continue this conversation because there is a lot I think there's a lot to say there. I want to talk I wanted to uh, talk about muscle 
uh, hypertrophy and general training principles. Uh, I'm a member of your AARR and I would just, yeah, it's, I'm actually just making my way through, well, (laughs) another controversial topic is transgendered sports. Should we, what, what are some of the uh, differences, let's say in a a biological man, a transgendered woman competing in female sports and reading about the Q angle and all the different things. And so anyway, first of all, Thank you so much for being sub to AARR. That's I'm honored to hear that. And and secondly, <clears throat> like you you've read my publicly available stuff. So the fact that yes. you've read the stuff in AARR is just huge. It's it's tremendous for me. I mean, this is like this is why I do this. I want people to actually read it and benefit from it. So it's just awesome to hear that. And so you you did read the the athletic advantages article of, of transgender versus, versus cisgender women. Correct. And I, I'm kind of amazed that it's even a debate. <laughs> I'm kind of amazed that like there should be a, a hierarchy of, of importance with respect to that. It should be fairness first and then everything else. Let's, keep fairness right at the top at all times. And then we go from there. We look at the data and then the data tells us what we need to do. And it's very clear. So I'm glad you read that article. Yes, it was. It's an excellent. It's an excellently presented article. The way that the data is presented is easy to read, even if you are not you don't have a, a PhD or you never had to defend a thesis. So it is, is something that I think health professionals, everyone should really have a subscri- subscription to it. And we'll make sure that there's a link in the show notes for people to check it out. And so affordable, so like 10 bucks a month, nothing. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a cup of coffee. And uh, at least if you're buying a cup of coffee from Starbucks, it's like they're, you know, 10 bucks or whatever it is. <laughs> nice cappuccinos runs you about that. So yeah. uh We'll make sure that we have um, a link in the show notes there. But it's just been a delight, truly, to spend this time with you. And I would love to have you back on, and we can we can continue the conversation on a whole. There's a whole host of other topics that I would love to uh, unpack with you. But for your time today, I wanted to thank you for your focus, your time, your energy. I know these are currencies that we all trade in, other than other than money. So I, I wanted to just thank you for uh, really bringing it. And I know this is going to be very valuable to my audience. Thank you so much. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.